Hello and welcome to the Work of All Being podcast. I'm Amy from The Wellness Strategy and I'm your host and sometimes just the person you're going to listen to talk. We have a range of episodes. If you haven't already dived into those, please go ahead and do so. But what this podcast really is about is giving you insights into different things that support well-being that perhaps we don't always think of. We have a range of guests who are going to broaden our understanding and experience on what well-being actually looks like, especially in the workplace. And I too will be sharing with you tips, insights, strategies, and just my overall thinking and ramblings. So hang out with us as much as you can, learn as much as you can. And if there's anything you want me to speak of or a guest you want me to interview, absolutely let me know because this is the work of well-being, which means all of us are here together to do the work that matters most so you can have a thriving, fulfilling life both in and out of the workplace. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another Wellbeing Podcast episode. Today, we have a guest joining us. Very excited. Another guest who is all about teacher wellbeing and helping us understand this big topic. We have with us Sue Webb. Now, Sue is author of Teachers Cry Too. Welcome, Sue. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I've been looking forward to it. Yeah, definitely. So, Sue, your book is called Teachers Cry Too. And I must say, uh, the artwork on this is beautiful. It just, it's I know you podcast listeners can't see it, but it's a picture of an eye and it looks like the eye is welling up and there's a teardrop and there's just so much emotion in the cover, which makes me think the book is going to be filled with emotion. And I know, you know, it's it's your story. It's it's a reflection of your experience as a teacher and a leader. Would you mind telling us about the story itself, but also what prompted you to write it, the inspiration behind it and what you hope readers get out of it? Sure. I'm glad you made reference to the um, to the cover actually because when it was in um, the stages of publication, the publisher sent me three options, uh, and I loved that one straight away because I just felt that it really captured the deeply reflective nature of teaching, mm. um, and also the intensity and the emotional job that it can it can often be. Um, and so the story is um, a lot about that, actually. Um, it's a story that begins in 2016 when I had a severe panic attack. And that experience kick-started a four-year decline in mental health for me, um, something that I didn't understand because I just didn't see it coming. Mm-hmm. And in fact, something that I didn't actually associate with work, because it didn't happen at work, uh, it happened when I was driving my daughter to sport on the weekend. I didn't put, I didn't connect it with uh, workplace stress. Actually, uh, that took that took a while, and uh, since then I've I've done a lot of um, reading and a lot of finding out about the impacts of workplace stress and how that can impact on our lives more broadly. And so I have a much better understanding of that. I wrote it. I started writing the story, Amy, really because I wanted to try and make um, sense of what had happened to me. Um, and then perhaps pinpoint some of the causes along the way in an effort to share that story more broadly so that people can um, really put some things in place before they reach the point of crisis, as I did. Um, Originally, it began as a a personal project, but as I spoke a lot more with my, my colleagues and educators around me, both teachers and school leaders, it became very apparent to me that the story, unfortunately, is all too common in the profession at the moment. Um, and so I, I was keen to 
to share that story in the hopes that it might be able to offer some reassurance to others. Mm. Yeah, thank you for sharing. I can relate to so many of those aspects. The first one is that therapeutic feeling of of writing and trying to make sense of what was happening. So um, in my own book, I share my own story of I had chronic stress um, and I, I connected to the workplace, yes, but not only. And and I didn't really understand it until I started writing about it. I didn't understand the intricacies of it, the signs that were there that I ignored, um, that I that it possibly could have been prevented, but also that no one else is talking about this. You know, we're really not talking about the seriousness of these issues. And in fact, when I think about your experience and mine, if anything, we take those signs and kind of turn them into some kind of glorification piece around, you know, the more tired we are, the more successful we must be as educators or the harder we're working. So that means we're a better teacher and that's not not true at all. You, you mentioned that you had a panic attack and then it was a four-year downward spiral or spiral. In that four years, did you know what was happening? Did it get worse? Did it get better? What, what happened in that four-year period? Yeah, um, the the original symptoms um, right in that moment of of the attack happening, they they were quite um, quite physical. So loss of breath. Um, I I didn't know where I was when we were, when I was on the road. I just had no idea where I was going. All of a sudden, I couldn't work out how to get back. I didn't seem to be able to make any decisions that would enable me to pull the car over. I had an overwhelming sense of, gosh, I, I need to stop the car and get us both out of the car, but I just couldn't seem to make that happen. Um, in fact, all I could do really is focus on the road in front of me and try and stay in the lines. Um, and I, I don't remember getting home that day. Um, the next thing that I remember was my husband walked in the door and found me on the bathroom floor um so uh so the immediate symptoms were quite frightening um and even then I thought I don't maybe if I just you know I'll I'll have an early night I'll get through the weekend uh, and things will get better but unfortunately as we know with burnout that that doesn't happen and my symptoms continued to escalate for the next four years um, and so what that looked like in the workplace for me were things like um, I wasn't able to retain information. I wasn't able to process information, which um, is a big problem for teachers, as you know, because we're swamped with information on a daily basis, yeah. often of a, of a information that's of a, um, a, a sensitive and confidential nature. Um, I wasn't able to make the decisions that I would normally make in the course of my day on a day-to-day basis without thinking twice. I just was not able to make those decisions, certainly not high-level decisions. Um, the, I lost my ability to remember, so, so my memory um, was really affected, which meant that as a school leader at that time, even things like a simple phone conversation I started to basically script those conversations before I had to pick up the phone to talk to a parent because I had to work so much harder at um, being across the detail and being articulate. Um, uh, Nausea. um, I I had a real, I developed over a period of time because, because I didn't respond to it 
perhaps the way I should have and didn't get the help that I should have at the time, my symptoms escalated into um, OCD type behaviours uh, and obsessions around, particularly um, fear-based obsessions around safety. Um, and so that th those things took a long time um, really to start dissipating. It wasn't until I'd done a lot of work in um, recovery and learning about the condition uh, that I was able to put in place some strategies that over, thankfully, over a period of time helped me to get control over some of those symptoms. Mm, yeah. It's, um, again, I can so relate to those things. When you, when you went back in, into your working role after that initial panic attack and noticed that perhaps you couldn't retain information or had trouble making decisions, did you know that that was what was happening at the time? Did you have awareness of that or was it later? I did have awareness of it. Um, it was quite isolating, actually, because, you, you know, you when you know that you're not functioning the way you need to, the way you normally have been able to, um, it brings into question your ability to do the job. And so um, I, um, I had to be very careful and make some decisions about whether or not I felt it was responsible to keep to continue in that leadership position at that particular time I was a year level coordinator mm. and when you're responsible for the for the the health and the safety and the well-being and the education of 150 young people uh, and you know that you are not making timely decisions you that you're just not really capable of functioning the way you need to be then I I made a decision at the end of 2016 to step back from that to, to rescind that leadership position um, I didn't tell anybody about why. At that stage, I still didn't really understand it myself. Yeah. Um, and as I said, I, I think, and, and perhaps what a lot of teachers do is I kept putting it off because I kept thinking, oh, things will get better. Those symptoms will dissipate. And then, then I would think, oh, look, if I can just hold on until the next school holidays, then I'll have a chance to rest and recover and I'll be able to, and I'll be right. But it didn't work that way and um and it went on for longer than perhaps it should have mm. and how common is that in the profession of education I'm not okay I'll just hold on until school holidays I'm not okay I'll just wait until you know that next break where I can recuperate and start to feel better having been through that myself also but you know you to what are the ramifications of that with that mindset and that mentality of always thinking, I'll just keep going, I'll just keep going and not actually pausing to really ask what's going on? Mm. Well, the ramifications for me is that it got worse. And when it got worse, then it, got, it became harder to, um, to kind of hide what was going on for me. And because I didn't want to, um, I didn't kind of tell anybody what was going on. My husband was the only person who knew um so the the excuses and the avoidance strategies that I invented um and the and the um you know the 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 pretenses that I had to keep up became exhausting within themselves um and and it, it just kind of became um it became just a constant need to um uh kind of cover up what was happening and and, and I think at the time uh, what I what I was looking for was privacy, but mm -hmm. what I was really um, creating was secrecy. 
Yeah. Uh, and so then I felt like I had, oh, I've got a, I've got this secret to keep. I didn't want to in any way jeopardise my professional um, my professional standing in the community or my professional identity within my school community. And so I, I kept it to myself. Yeah, there is that level of almost shame around it. You know, like if, if I admit to this, then I'm also admitting that perhaps I'm not the person everyone thinks I am. And then what will other people think about me? And will I be able to continue? And what if I let people down and people will start to judge me? But I think you know, the reality is what we're, what we're seeing now, especially as we start to talk about teacher well-being and the state of education, taking it more seriously and more people sharing is that it isn't a case of you're alone and people will judge you. It's actually a case of people standing up and saying, I get it. I've been there. Yeah. You know, I, I've, yeah. I've too not been able to get out of my car because I've been so exhausted. I too have not been able to make decisions. I too have, you know, stood in the supermarket and not been able to think about where I need to go or what I need to do because I'm just so overwhelmed and tired. I think we we normalize in some ways the idea that we have to be busy and we have to keep moving and we have to keep working but actually what is normal is this feeling of ongoing exhaustion or stress or burnout and not feeling like we're able to cope um and I think there are many reasons for that but I'd I'd really like to ask you 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 have over 30 years experience in education so longer than I have what have you noticed in terms of the difference between when you started teaching and now and the pressures and I guess the, the conversation or the identity around being a teacher? Yeah, uh, look, there's been some big changes in education in the last 30 years. Um, I'd probably talk about two that most had an impact on me. Um, I think the nature of the job has changed. Uh, and by that, I mean, we know that the complexities facing young people um, are, are increasing um, and our classrooms are microcosms really of what we see young people facing in our society more broadly so when we talk about you know, when we talk about the issues facing young people like suicidal ideation self-harm gaming addictions substance abuse a rise in aggressive and antisocial behaviors these are the crisis points that teachers are now stepping into certainly more regularly than I ever did as a beginning teacher. Um, and so I think that has that that's what we call the emotional labour of the job, which is sometimes um, not, not visible to others. So that, that had a big impact on me. The job has also changed in that it's become a lot more prescriptive over the years. So the curriculum doesn't allow teachers really to make that many decisions um, about what we teach and when we teach it. Um, and that is a real contrast because I remember my first year as a as an as an English teacher, I remember my English coordinator pulling up a chair and sitting beside me and saying, "So, so what are you going to teach this year?" <laughs> and I and I had open slather, which meant I could play with the curriculum and and I could tap into what the kids were really interested in and run with that. Um, that's not the case anymore, um, and so. In some ways, I felt I could feel um, less job satisfaction. It was it eroded my job satisfaction having to, it, it was almost becoming a, a lockstep approach to this is where we need to be up to by week three, regardless of whether the kids were there or not, or even regardless of whether or not the kids were beyond there. Um, we, we, we were, we were, I felt that, um, that I was 
pretty much dictated to by what the unit unit plan asked me to be doing at that at a particular time. So that eroded job satisfaction. But the other change is um, that I think is really something that we need to pay attention to, and thankfully people are, is the absolute volume of work that needs to be done now in schools. Um, you know, we talk about work intensification, we talk about the, the constant need to evidence what we're doing. Um, and the impact of that on me is that I felt too pinned to my desk by bureaucracy, where when what I wanted to do was be at the at the forefront of working with young people. Um, you know, and, and I think teachers on the whole are practitioners. And so we, I, I certainly, when I went into teaching, I didn't go into the job thinking, oh, it's primarily going to be a desk job. But increasingly, I'm finding um, that's what it's becoming if, if, if you're not careful. Uh, and, um, and so I think the job, the, the, the amount of work that I was having to get done in a day just became unsustainable. Mm, yeah, there's definitely, I think, a number of compounding factors in that. And many teachers are, are articulating and identifying that. I think, I think too, part of it is, in, yes, there is systemic issues around curriculum or um, what it is we're supposed to teach, but then also every school accesses and does it differently. Every state does it differently. Um, you know, it, it, there are so many things that perhaps we don't talk to each other about as educators and so we're all working harder when maybe we could work a little bit differently and I definitely think these conversations are helping in school leaders being able to recognise that we can do things differently and also part of it uh, in two is around allowing teachers to be able to have these discussions and understand that there are things that they can shift to bring that satisfaction back into their workplace and you know to find meaning in what we do. I I mean, I don't teach anymore and there is a part of me that is very sad about that. I love teaching. I love the profession. It was not an easy decision to walk away. In fact, I tried to hold on to it for as long as possible. I went from full-time to part-time and then went to uh, relief teaching because I couldn't let it go. And it got to the point where I had to choose between how well am I showing up for these students and also is this impacting my health and the work that I'm now doing? So, you know, it leaving a profession that you love is really hard when there's there's actually a bigger piece of work to do and so I often hear and look at things and I think oh there you know teaching is great and we really need to be mindful of how we talk about it we need to be bringing back some of this optimism and joy and hope into school spaces and and you know get excited about what it is that we do again I agree the um it's interesting that you talk about um, the sadness that you felt when you left the profession, because I've talked to a lot of teachers who also describe almost like a feeling of grief um, when they decide to walk away or even when, or when they retire. Mm, um, yes, and I think yeah. it's because teaching just becomes so much a part of our identity um, that it just, when, you have to, when you decide to separate yourself from that, it is a grieving process. Um, uh, the other thing too, it, you know, that, that importance of connecting with joy in schools is just so, um, is just so important because I always think if there, if there was ever a workplace that should be brimming with optimism and energy, it should be a, a workplace in which we are surrounded by young people. Um, and so sometimes I think we lose sight of, you know, that 
teachers can really impact young people, but we need to be teaching with, with, with optimism so that they can look forward with hope to a future that they really want to be a part of. That's such an important part of school culture. Mm. Um, and, it, you know, there are a lot of people, your pathway seems very similar to mine, actually, because I've just recently um, stepped back from my permanent position and I'm doing uh, relief and contract work because I love being in the classroom and I love teaching and I, and I still want to be there. But the attrition rates, it's too, I think this is interesting, is that when I look now at the research coming out around the attrition rates in the profession, those numbers are only capturing the numbers of teachers who are walking away. They're not measuring the number of teachers who are opting to work part-time because they feel as though they can't keep up with a full-time teaching load anymore. Um, and so I, I do um, wonder, I think, I think that the numbers of teachers leaving the profession are a little bit um, almost underestimated because we also have teachers who are um, choosing to stay in the profession but just to work part-time so that they can keep on top of it. Yeah, definitely. I think I'm one of those statistics too we're not, count, not aware of. You know, I keep my teacher registration just in case one day I go back, but I'm not teaching. And so how many out there of us are like that out there where we, we're registered to teach but not teaching? And so the statistics around things like attrition or even why teachers are leaving, is it because they're going to another profession? Is it because they're burnt out? Is it because they you know, couldn't get work in an area that they live in or for whatever? We don't capture that either. So there's so many... I, I think, um, stories that we tell ourselves around this and we're talking about it, you kind of can't get on any news platform without seeing it or hearing it or paying attention mm -hmm. to it. But the truth is we don't have all of, I think, we, we don't have an in-depth study of that data yet and perhaps in some ways we're not asking the right people the right questions and we really need to focus on not why are they leaving but what would make them stay. Mm -hmm. And so... In regards to joy and optimism and bringing that back in the classroom, what would you say schools or teachers can do to find that again? Um, well, I, I can talk a little bit about how I did <laughs> um, because I, after, as a process of recovery, what I found was um, that I was able to re-engage with teaching because I developed a different relationship with my work. And so part of that meant... Um, it, I looked at the, the things that I had, that I, you know, the, the, the um, part, parts of the role of my job role, and I thought anything that does not directly impact on teaching and learning, that's going to the bottom of my list. <laughs> that's the lowest of my priorities. I love and that. I moved up anything that I could see um, that would benefit the kids in some way that I thought, yeah, this is actually going to be really helpful for them, or this is going to be interesting to them, or this is really going to help them move forward, then I prioritise those things. And of course, when you are able to engage students in the classroom, that's where the job satisfaction is. Mm. When the kids actually drive their own learning and they love what they're doing and they're excited about what they're learning and they can be curious and ask questions, they're the things that um, engage teachers. That, that's the best part of the job. And so what I did was I put those things first. Um, uh, the other thing that I found really helpful was talking to other educators about what, what things they were doing and how they were managing different things because you're right, it looks different in different schools. Um, and there are some 
gee, there are some really innovative, creative, committed educators out there, yeah. very talented, skilled people that I have just have so much ad admiration for, for so many people in my profession. Um, and that really helped to energise me as well because I was able to look at some of the things that they were doing and go, oh, that, that might work, but let's give that a go. Mm. Um, but in terms of energising, in terms of keeping teachers in in schools, the first thing we need to do is ask them. Yeah. I think um, educators are used to being spoken to a lot. We're used to be, you know, that word should. Schools should do this. Teachers should do that. But if we stop and ask them, what are the aspects of your job that you love? The the answer will be there. And, you know, um, what we, we're hearing over and over again are things like that they want to be with the kids. They want to connect with the young people. They want to be engaged in work that they see as purposeful and meaningful. They don't want to be spending hours behind paperwork that they really see little value in. Um, and so... You're right, we can flip the question instead of asking why are you leaving, let's ask what why would you stay? What what would what could what are the things that keep you loving the job? Mm, yeah. So I don't know about you, but I have a lot of hope that education will look differently, that maybe in five years we'll have another conversation. I mean, we'll talk in between then, but let's say in five years <laughs> we have another conversation around this and it looks different. Like schools look different. The purpose of schools are different. We have, you know, in my dream utopia is that schools uh, become these community hubs to, as you mentioned in the beginning, support those students in regards to complexity of needs that we're seeing coming through that. Let's be honest, teachers aren't equipped for, you know, we're not psychologists, we're not speech pathologists, we're not behavioral specialists. Um, we're not all of the things that our students need. We are teachers. And so my dream is that, is that schools become these places where you know, education is one aspect of what a school focuses at. And we have a suite of professionals that engage and work, not just with our students, but with teachers too. And I think that that's going to be part of the key to turning this whole concept around. I feel like perhaps that's a really big dream and we're not talking about that yet, but who knows, maybe someone will listen and think, oh yes, that's what we should do and we'll see it. But what do you hope for in the next five years that you'll see in the education space? Um, it's interesting because I was using a five-year framework with uh, a timeline with, with somebody else I was talking to recently and I was saying, you know, I think um, at the moment that the feeling, it's easy to feel that the, the profession is in crisis, but with crisis comes opportunity. Yeah, And huge. so it, it, in some ways, it's a, it's, an, it, it's, a, it's a fascinating time to be a teacher. Yeah. In some ways, it's an exciting time to be a teacher because I, I like you, am wondering what changes might we see in education in the next five years? And although systemic change is slow, I get the sense that there's some um, there's some momentum there at the moment. Um, and so I, I, I'm I'm quite hopeful about that. Well, one of the things that I think has been really helpful is that. I think you mentioned in your book, Amy, that we've only just started talking fairly recently about um, expressing emotion. Um, but yeah. I think one of the things that's really uh, hopeful and important is that we now have a language framework around which to describe and respond to um, well-being in the workplace, whether that be in schools or any other workplace. So, you know, when we hear terms like um, 
emotional labor, decision fatigue, work enmeshment. Um, when we talk about self-care, these are terms that really I certainly didn't have access to as a beginning teacher, but with a language to understand it and respond to workplace needs, then I think we'll, we'll all be better positioned to be able to work in a, in a more healthy and sustainable way. And that's my vision for schools is that I, I hope that what I want is that teaching is an appealing profession because we need good, talented, smart, um, creative, innovative, energetic people to dive in because now more than ever, our young people need, um, they need reasons to buy in to something bigger than themselves. And that's what education can be. Yeah, absolutely. I agree 100% with all of those things, especially too around, we, 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 we forget sometimes that whilst well-being may have been a word that has been around for a long time, the idea of actually focusing on it in schools, not just the staff, but even students is relatively new. It wasn't around when I started teaching and that was, you know, going on 20 years ago and that's not really that long ago. It kind of feels like a lot. I've got a lot of great hair, so my hair, my hairdresser this morning would say differently. But um, you know, you, know, you haven't like, got any gray hair. I can't see. Oh, it's can't the whole other thing. It's, it's the one. It's the one thing you can't undo or heal properly from when you have chronic stress. That's what I've learned. Like everything else, I could reverse um, digestion issues, learning to sleep again, learning to slow down, managing the, the to do list, all of the things. But I can't get rid of the gray hair. It doesn't go away. And so in some ways, it's a reminder, you know, I look in the mirror and I think, don't go down that path again. There it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's so true. Yeah. Yeah, I know. It, it's um, it's difficult to understand it. Once you have had the experience, do you feel that you just know so much better? You know, when, you're not, when, when you've been through it and you know better, then you can do better and you're much more alert to the kind of flags that you have to pay attention to? Oh, hugely. And like I mentioned at the beginning, you know, I didn't actually know the flags were flags until I wrote about it, until I really sat with that um, that process and experience of it. And I think not that I would ever want every, anyone to go through what I went through and kind of hit that rock bottom place. Um, and that's why I think conversations like this are important. We, the signs are there. We've got to learn to listen to them and not glorify them. And there's a really big difference between saying, hey, I'm really tired. I actually don't think I can go on. And someone saying, what do you need? How can I help? Versus if you think you're tired, let me tell you how hard my day's been. Yeah. There's a very big sure. difference between those two. And I don't know if we're there yet. I don't know um, if we're there yet because we don't want to sometimes step into that space like you and I've shared. And I also don't know if we're there yet because we don't really understand those words. So I recently interviewed um Dr. Jenny uh, on my podcast talking about the, the sliding scale of healthy stress all the way to burnout and she's amazing she's fantastic and how you know we use burnout like oh I'm so burnt out today but actually you can't be like burnout that's not what burnout is burnout is long-term ongoing chronic stress that puts you into a place of complete exhaustion but functioning and so we're using words like stress, anxiety, burnout, overwhelm in a way that actually is inaccurate and misunderstood. And so you can't discern between is that person really burnt out or are they just using the word incorrectly? So, again, it's a whole language piece around what we need to do. And that's why 
this matters. That's why you and I and others sharing their story really, I think, helps because we have to get better at talking about those things in the education setting and being able to ask, you know, is this perhaps healthy stress and we're all going to be okay and we can get through it like report writing time or is this actually stress that's been bubbling away and there are some things we need to address personally professionally individually or collectively here Mm. you're right I think um, sometimes we can avoid having these kinds of conversations because we're a bit um, we're a little bit mindful of opening Pandora's box (laughs) And perhaps not not really quite being confident about how to deal with what's going to come out of that box. <laughs> but I do think that um, these conversations are going to happen anyway. Yeah. And I I think it's in the best interest really of organisations, whether that be schools or any organisation, um, to to have a um, you know to to embed in workplace culture that ability to have these conversations in a way that that is um, safe for people. Um, but I also think we, we need to have people in place and it's not necessarily going to be school leaders because they're not trained psychologists. No, they, you know, they, they, they're, they're there to manage the school Ooh. and to oversee the, the school community. Um, but part of me does think that we could probably do a little bit better than the, um, the employment assistance programs at the moment that model looks like a um, an outsourced provider and a phone number that, that we can use and I've had mixed reports about that some people have found that very helpful other people have said oh it, 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 it was a little tokenistic um, but you're right there needs to be some kind of model with which we can have those conversations in an open transparent safe way um, that 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 meets the needs of everybody in the school community, staff included. Yeah, because if we don't have these conversations, then we're going to be left guessing as to why people are stressed, overwhelmed, taking leave, not like leaving the profession altogether. And actually what that means is school leaders are left guessing in terms of how to fix something or change it. And so there's actually really valuable data in the conversations around why people might be stressed or struggling. And we have a tendency to want to rush through that and dismiss it. But what lies in that data, in, in this qualitative data, and I do, I spend a lot of time with schools collecting that. In, I, you know, I run these discussions in schools and I ask what's going on beneath the surface? What happens below the, the quantitative data of 70% of the staff are stressed? Like, what does that actually mean? Because in there are the pieces around strategic strategy and change. Mm-hmm. And I do often hear, you know, are we opening Pandora's box? Is it like opening a can of worms? But it's not because everyone wants to do the right thing. Everyone actually wants change. Everyone wants it to be different. And so we can do it in a way that is still kind and compassionate and generous with the solutions focused thinking approach. That means, you know what? Yeah, it's hard, but we can get better. And it means we've got to work together on it. And so I I think we can't devalue those moments, but we should be rushing through them or thinking my principal doesn't care because they're not going to do anything. In actual fact, as you said, the school leaders are educators. They're not professionals they're not trained in psychology or positive psychology or counseling or whatever it is that we might be needing right now and so we have to remember they're doing the best they can with what they've got mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, it's an interesting decision isn't it to choose whether to come forward as an employee and disclose a mental health issue um, to your boss <laughs> and I think um, certainly in my case um, 
you know, I would never expect, I believe that my well-being and my mental health is my responsibility. If I'm disclosing that to a line manager, it's not because I expect them to fix it. Yeah. It's just because I want them to know yeah. that, um, that there's something that I'm dealing with. Um, and, and perhaps if our, if our school leaders can do anything, they can step in to perhaps shield staff a little bit from, from some of the, perhaps from some of the bureaucracy and some of the mandates that, that maybe aren't necessarily a priority. Oh, that's such, you touched on something really big there. And I think that's around responsibility. You know, you just said my mental health and, and wellbeing is my responsibility. And for some, we're not at that point. You know, we're at the point where we think it's our leader's responsibility. It's the system's responsibility. It's school's responsibility. But you know, no one can fix your well-being. No one can change the things. It, it is up to us as individuals. There is a huge level of individual responsibility, which I think too is sometimes why some people don't want to talk about it. Because when you start talking about it and naming it, you kind of have to then take responsibility for it. And I know in my own journey, that was probably step number one and two, stop blaming other people or the system or the school or your job and take responsibility for what you're doing or not doing or overdoing or you know, could do, but are too lazy to do or won't do, or are telling yourself you should do, but actually don't need to do at all. And so I think that is a huge piece in this conversation as well, is that, you know, I often joke and say, you know, your principal is not going to come around and tell you what time to go to bed. So if sleep's on your list of things to improve, that is your responsibility. It goes much wider than that though, definitely. And mm. that can be hard. That can be really mm. hard. The, the the way I think of it in terms of well-being overall is uh, um, kind of in two different um, categories, if you like. So self-care is one category of well-being. Yeah. That's the part that I'm responsible for. But um, I also think that there's a much, we're moving towards um, a better understanding of an organisational and individual shared and collective responsibility around work, workplace health and well-being. Um, because I do think, you know, that sometimes I think we, if if we put the responsibility solely on the on the place of the individual, all the all the self care in the world is not going to um, is not going to alleviate unsustainable work practices that are systemic, yeah. those embedded systemic um, things that sometimes we feel like we can't change, and and, and unfortunately with education. Change is notoriously slow in coming. <laughs> um, yeah. I think the, the, in some ways the corporates are there well before we are. But um, definitely, I agree. Yeah, and there is there's there's definitely though that individual responsibility, and I think collective responsibility through work workplaces too is a run around people need this education and we weren't taught it in schools. <laughs> I mean, we are now starting to teach our students, which is amazing, but we weren't taught it when we went to school. So there's an education piece, but then there is also collective responsibility around looking at the causes of stress or what might be contributing to perhaps overwhelm, ongoing stress or even burnout. And that is collective responsibility, not just through leadership, but through speaking up about what those things are, because if we don't name it, we can't fix it. We can't solve it. That's that's exactly right. Knowing how to identify it and naming it is a big part of the um, is a big part of the way forward. I think. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Sue, this has been a fantastic conversation. I feel like I need to wrap up because I have a few other questions in my head, and if we go down that path, we'll be here for hours. <laughs> okay. So, 
<laughs> I would love to um, finish with the fast five if you're up for it. Okay, sure. Love awesome. to. Um, what's something you know now that you wish you knew when you were younger? Uh, I wish I knew that um, nobody understands and knows what I need better than I do. Oh, and so I wish I had, um, I, I think we should trust our own voice, learn to listen and trust our own voice a little bit more. Mm, that could be a podcast on its own, definitely. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> totally agree. <laughs> yeah. Um, what book are you currently reading? Uh, I'm reading The Opera House by Peter Fitzsimon. Um, nothing to do with education because it's school it. holidays, so I, I needed something that was, wasn't about education. And I'm loving it because I've realised uh, it's a fascinating history in that building. Uh, mm. And and it's, um, you, you know, sometimes when you read books like this, you realise, well, I do, I realise how little I know about our own country's history. Yeah, I would agree, definitely. And I was only talking to someone else recently about how we can kind of underestimate the value of fiction books but there's still so much to learn I mean I'm an avid non-fiction reader but every now and then I force myself to, usually around this time right school holidays force myself to read a novel and I really underestimate how much you can learn from them yeah yeah that's true yeah this is not this is actually um this is research though so it's not it's oh it's, it's, it's like a, a journey through the history of the oh it's massive yeah 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 it's great wow that's pretty cool. Um, number three, what are your non-negotiable well-being habits? Uh, well, the first thing is um, the first thing that I put in place, and something that I still really strictly adhere to, are time boundaries around the number mm. of hours I work. Um, yep, and I also do. This is something that I started doing as well. I read about um, the importance of doing self audits um, Ooh, and checking in with ourselves. Yeah, so so I used to do it when I was really not well. In, I suppose in the, in in the darkest days, I, I would sometimes do a self audit almost hourly just to check in with what's going on. Where am I feeling the nausea or the um the fear? Is it is it so? I, I so you check in with yourself and really kind of just stop to um, pay attention to how you're feeling and where you're feeling it. So that once you can identify um, the places of unrest um, or the places of turmoil, then you can better attend to that. So I, start, I, I was doing that very regularly, but as I've journeyed through recovery, I don't have to do it as much. And yeah. um, so there are some days where I don't need to do it at all. But if I do feel that little niggling um, nausea coming back or that little bit of fear that's, that's kind of hovering around, um, one of the first things I do is a bit of a self-audit to say, right, what, what's going on? And once I work out what's going on and where I'm feeling it, then I can better put in place the strategies I need to attend to it. Mm. So sometimes that might mean I need to move. I need to yep. go outside and go for a brisk walk. And get... Other times I might need the opposite. Sometimes I might just need a quiet corner somewhere, um, light a candle, something to um, something that will help me to become still. Mm, I love that. It's very much having about having that level of self-awareness and being able to tap into your emotions and recognize them and kind of say, oh, that's interesting. Like, you know, and I often talk about how emotions are data. They're not good or bad. They just are. But it's what we do with that energy, which you just said, you know, sometimes we need to run and move and process that. Or sometimes we need to sit in journal or sometimes we need to talk with someone. It really is having that level of self-awareness to be able to reflect on that. So I love that little self-audit. And thank you for sharing too that sometimes you had to do that every hour. That is that self-responsibility piece, definitely. Um, number four, 
have, what have you tried or have you tried something for your well-being that hasn't worked or gone to plan or happened mm-hmm. you would have liked it? I have. Um, I think what I tried to do was um, uh, work towards bringing about some changes in the system <laughs> and that didn't really work for me. <laughs> I'm definitely laughing with you for sure. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I know. Um, As we've said before, the, uh, you know, change in education is notoriously slow. And to be honest, education sometimes feels like this juggernaut that that really you've got very little control over. And so then I very quickly realised that it was just taking too much of my time and too much of my energy and it was misplaced because what I really needed to focus on is my relationship with that work, not mm. the work, not necessarily the work itself. So beautifully said, putting the energy into things that you can control and that are going to have benefit to you and not getting stuck in the things that we can't control and influence, even though we'd like to. And, you know, yeah. I often say around that, that's not to say we don't care or we don't stop rallying or we don't stop talking about it, but we have, we only have so much energy to give. And so you've got to really decide mm-hmm. where that goes. Yeah. 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 And last one, what area of life, well-being or leadership are you working on at the moment? Um, well, on, on the same, in the same vein, I'm um, really interested in uh, the space of advocacy. Um, so, like you said, how, what, what conversations can we have and how can I be involved in that conversation mm-hmm. to help other educators to, um, to really amplify the, the kinds of challenges that teachers are dealing with? Um, I think that's important and and education around that wellbeing space because uh, I just know that through I've done a bit of a deep dive into learning about what went wrong and how it happened and how did I get to that point of crisis Mm, Um, and I I just feel like I know so much more now and I'm so much better equipped to um, to, to handle it and so I, I would like the Teachers Pie 2 project to bring some of that, to be able to bring some of that into the into um, into schools and talk to to other educators who might find it helpful. Mm, yeah, that I think that's a beautiful mission. We need more of that. Sue, thank you so much for uh, hanging out this afternoon and chatting and sharing and being so open. You you've actually given me a little bit of a, a spring in my step this afternoon. I think like I feel um that that there is hope and you know it's so I love talking to other people and having people guests on because it's a reminder that there are so many of us doing great work and collectively that's going to have huge impact so thank you so much for spending time with us and chatting and sharing it is very much appreciated oh thank you Amy it's been an absolute delight and thank you for all of your hard work and the, the contributions that you're making in in the school community as well it's really important work No, thank you. And thanks everyone for listening. Um, This has been absolutely awesome, but I will see you on the next podcast episode, no doubt. So enjoy your day, evening, night, whatever time of day is for you. And I'll speak to you soon. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode. It was an absolute delight to have you here. If you want to learn more about the work I do in the wellness strategy, whether it's for your own personal well-being or professional and workplace well-being, the best place to hang out with me is on LinkedIn. I share with you an immense amount of content, strategy and information that's going to help you transform your well-being right now. So head over there. Simple LinkedIn, Amy Green. You should be able to find that. 
It's also in the show notes. And if you need anything else, I'm across all other social media platforms, Instagram, Facebook, and I'm even trying out TikTok. So you never know where this is going to go. But thank you so much for hanging out with me. If you need anything at all, you can always send me an email. You can find me on those socials. But most importantly, just keep doing the work of well-being.